0: It's gotten completely out of hand this morning, so I have a long message for you. So I, I want to urge you and tell you ahead of time: be prepared, and uh, it's vital that you stay with me. Stay with me, and for some of you, you, may have to work hard. That's okay. I'm serious. You work hard, but stay with me. This is imperative that we understand what God has to say to us about the stable life. Now, if you're digging out your notes and you're going to attempt to follow me along in the notes, forget it. When I got my notes into the office on Friday morning, uh, and got them all typed up, and got them into the computer room and all that stuff, and they got all printed up for the bulletin, Friday afternoon when I went home to finish studying for the message, my message took a right turn. (laughs) So there's still some questions there that I think that are worthy of discussion and meditation upon. However, uh, you'll have to flip the page over and take a whole new set of notes. And let me just give you real simply the outline. We're going to have three major points. So write one, two, three. Leave some room to write. And then under point three, write four more sub points. Okay? One, two, three, subpoints, And then four subpoints under the third one. Got it? Good. Get it. Last week, I quoted to you from the Barna Report. The Barna Report is uh, put out by a man named George Barna. He has surveyed uh, thousands of Christians, thousands of evangelicals, thousands of born-agains. And he has set before them a survey of questions. And he just asks them, do you agree or do you disagree? And based on the number of people he has surveyed, and then the answers he comes up with, or relative percentages. I want to read to you two more of the statements, and I want to show you the effect of the church or the 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 state of the church today in America. Just in response to these two questions, or statements. First statement: The Bible is the written word of God and is totally accurate in all that it teaches. Do you agree or not agree? He asked that of all born again Christians. Eighty percent agreed. disagreed. He made another statement. The Christian faith has all the answers to leading a successful life. The Christian faith has all the answers to leading a successful life. Asking born-again people, agree or disagree. 58% agreed. You should be in shock. 42% of evangelical people, born-again Christians, disagreed that the Christian faith has all that's necessary to live a successful life. I find that appalling. I find that absolutely appalling. We have major, major disagreement in terms of the fundamental faith which we profess and its efficacy for life and godliness. Hence, this is what I believe for the longest time. I've said this over and over and over. There are many, 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 many professing Christians who do not have confidence in the Word of God, nor do they have confidence in the very faith itself. And hence, they go outside the faith. They look to Egypt, if you will, if I can use a metaphor from the Old Testament. They lean on and trust in horses and chariots rather than their Lord God himself. Question. The Apostle Paul. Did the Apostle Paul have a stable life? I mean, was he a stable person? Do you think Paul was a stable man spiritually? Let's have a vote. How many people vote yes? How many people vote no? I read to you last week an interview, an excerpt from an interview of Dr. Robert Coles. Do you remember that? One of the most eminent psychiatrists of our day. I did not read a part of the interview in which he alluded to the suspicion on the part of many psychoanalysts today that the Apostle Paul himself could do well with at least a minimum of 10 years of psychotherapy. Absolutely. There is a strong belief that religion, faith in God, the Bible is hazardous to your health. I promise you, it's out there. These things are held up to mockery, and indeed, the Apostle Paul himself could do well with minimum 10 years of psychotherapy. That's that's tantamount to blasphemy. But that's the contemporary attitude. That's the attitude which largely has influenced our society. A stable life. Well, let's look at Paul's life and see just how stable he was. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter (laughs) 4, verse 8. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side. you ever felt hard-pressed on every side? Pressure, pressure, pressure every place you look. Unrelenting pressure. He says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not, what? Crushed. The pressure is on. I feel like I'm going to be crushed. He says, but we're not crushed. He goes on and he says, perplexed, but not in despair. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been so perplexed, so confused, that you feel just like throwing your hands up in despair, giving up? Perplexed, yes, but not in despair. Not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. you ever felt like you're all alone? You're not. You're not alone. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down. Struck down. But not destroyed. See, he identifies things that you and I can relate to. Isn't that true? Hard pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. But none of those things really do you in. Because why? You have stability in your life. You have stability in your life. Surely pressures come. Stable. You're spiritually stable so you can be personally stable. I'm always amused at how people say, I don't need your Bible and I don't need your Jesus and I don't need your Christianity. I got it all together. I'm stable. I say, You may think you're stable, but at any moment now your life is going to start unraveling. What do you mean? I said, well, for instance, do you know that you're just a heartbeat away from eternity? (laughs) Do you know that at any moment, something, some tragedy can befall your life, and the whole thing, your whole house of cards is going to come tumbling down? You don't realize it, but your life is built on sand. It's not built on a strong, solid foundation of the rock of Jesus Christ. So though you may think you have it all together, though you may think you're stable, you can only hold it together for so long. And pretty soon, it starts expanding. Pretty soon, you can't keep your arms around it. Pretty soon, it starts unraveling. Pretty soon, you are unstable. Verse 10. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that His life may be revealed in our mortal body. John the Baptist said it that way, didn't he? He said, I must what? Decrease so Christ can increase? So, sure, I'm going through all this stuff. It is normal, it is natural, and it is necessary. Necessary? Yes. So that what? So that Christ can be seen more in me. So that I have opportunity to grow and to mature into Christ-likeness. Paul says in Romans 8 that we are being conformed to the very image of Christ. Suffering is natural and it's necessary. Chuck Smith said years ago, He said, "You know, trials and difficulties and struggles and tribulation—they have one of two effects on you: either they serve to make you better, or they serve to make you bitter. And it all is all determined by your what? Your perspective on things. We said last week, as we studied from Psalm 1, that the stable man is the man who delights in the instruction of the Lord." He what? He delights in the instruction of the Lord. I've heard people say, I read my Bible, I read my Bible every day. (laughs) Well, you'd never know it by looking at them and listening to them. They don't delight in the instruction of the Lord. Because when you delight in it, the logical conclusion is that you're going to read it continually. You're going to meditate in it. You're going to love it. And when you do... You begin to view life from God's perspective. Not from your puny little pusillanimous perspective. From God's perspective. You see the big picture, you go, Oh! Oh, I see! I understand! Oh, I understand now! And so that when trials and suffering comes, difficulties come, persecution comes, you're not blown off balance. You're not knocked off your pins. Because why? You have the stability of God's viewpoint. Really. And so what? So now Christ can be revealed in you. Christ can be revealed in you. Christ can be revealed in you. you. You begin more and more and more to look like Jesus every day. Your life begins to demonstrate the qualities that marked his life. Look at verse 18. He says, therefore, he says, now we have this perspective. Therefore, we do not lose heart. See, a stable person doesn't lose heart. We don't lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Paul says in another place from glory to glory. We're being transformed inwardly. Though outwardly it seems like I'm just getting all beat up. I'm getting old. I'm getting fat. I'm getting slow. I'm, 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 I'm succumbing to the effects of sin. But inwardly, inwardly I'm being renewed day by day. He says, for our light and momentary troubles. Light and momentary troubles? Have you ever considered the suffering in your life to be a, a light and momentary trouble? Most of us don't. But when we look at them from whose perspective, then they begin to take on less and less real significance. Hey, it's a light and momentary trouble. It's not the end-all for me. It's a light and momentary trouble. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us, what, an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So in effect, if I am patiently enduring, if I am hopeful in the midst of whatever is going on that is not my fondest wish, if I'm looking from God's perspective, from His vantage point, these light and momentary troubles really are translating into a greater weight of glory in eternity for me. So when I get there, I can look back with 2020 hindsight and I can say, it was worth it. It was worth it. It was worth it. But if there is no Jesus, if there is no resurrection from the dead, if Christianity is just a big old lie, it ain't worth it. It just flat ain't worth it. So, he says in verse 18 we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but we fix our eyes on what? What is unseen that whole other realm that is going to outlast this visible realm he said for what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is what eternal do you have an eternal perspective are you so heavenly minded that you're some earthly good you get what I'm saying people say oh they're so heavenly minded the north are good No, we've got to be tremendously heavenly minded so that we become some earthly good. Turn over to Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. I would submit to you what we just read in in that passage in 2 Corinthians. I would submit to you that that describes a very stable life. A very stable life. This guy Paul, the apostle, was a very stable man. Very stable. Nothing knocked this guy off balance. Now why? Why was Paul so stable? In chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 1, there is a key statement in that verse. And then we're going to use that key statement, and we're going to hang everything else on that key statement. All the points, 1, 2, 3, and then the subpoints. we're going to hang them on this one key statement. Now bear with me. It's going to get deep going to get deep. Look around you, give your neighbor permission that if you'd start nodding off, they can elbow you. Do it now. Say, if i if, if I lose it, elbow me. Tell them, tell them. Good. Chapter 4, verse 1. Listen to what Paul says. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Here comes the key statement. That is how you should stand firm in the Lord. That is how you should stand firm. What do you mean, that is how? How should we stand firm in the Lord? I tell people all the time, I say, stand firm in the Lord. They go, okay. <laughs> well, how? <laughs> how do we stand firm? We're going to discover how right now. Jump back up into chapter 3. The first half of the chapter through verse 11. Describes point one. Point one. We begin at verse seven. He says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. He says, I consider them rubbish. Now that's a very polite translation for the actual Greek word could be more literally translated dung. I consider them nothing more than dung. I knew you'd appreciate that fine point. (laughs) I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own based on the law. What's he saying there? He's saying, you know what? Jesus is the most important person in my life. What's your claim to fame? What do you hang your 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 mental image of yourself on? What do you hang your reputation on? What's important to you? Who are you? Are you famous? You done some great thing? Are you Brilliant, intelligent, gifted, beautiful, rich, educated, what are, what are you? Where's your claim to fame? What are you hanging your sense of value and worth and identity on? He says, you know, he says, my whole past, everything, I worked hard, I developed my life, I was a Pharisee, I was... Righteous according to the law. I had it together. I was somebody. But, he says, I count all that stuff dung (laughs) compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. None of that stuff matters," he says. So what's the big deal? The most important thing, if you were to have a stable life, is that you hunger to know Christ. You say, "I hunger to know Him." Do you? Well, let's read on. He goes on and he says in verse ten, "I want to know Christ." Ooh, I'd agree with that. Would you? How many? Keep your hands up if you agree with that. I want to know Christ, okay, keep it real high, real high, keep them up there, we're going to keep reading here. If you want to know Christ, if you agree with Paul's sentiment, keep those hands up real high. I want to know Christ, now here's the second one, and the power of His resurrection, oh, I want to know the power of His resurrection. We all still in agreement? Hallelujah. Okay, here comes the third one, and the fellowship of sharing in His suffering, oh, well that's a whole nother issue. That tests the level of your commitment to know Christ. That's key. That's key. You can say all day long, Oh, I want to know Christ. Oh, and I want to know the power of His resurrection. But the real test is if you want to share in the fellowship of His suffering. To be hard-pressed. Two weeks ago, and I forget whether it was this service or it was the Friday night service, I, I was talking about this idea of suffering a little bit, and I challenged, I just threw out a challenge just to dinner, and I said, you know, who would pray for that? You know, No, we don't pray for that. We would never pray, God, turn the heat up. Right? And I just kind of threw it out to the congregation. I said, who would ever pray? Who would pray, turn the heat up? Two people, raise their hand. I thought to myself, they don't know what they're doing. And so last weekend... So a week later, a woman comes to me after the service. And I don't even know if she's here or, or not. But she came to me and she said, you know what? She said, I prayed that prayer. I said, what prayer? She said, you know the prayer you said that we should pray, turn the heat up? I said, you only pray that prayer if you really want to get holy. Said, if you're not anxious to get holy, don't pray that prayer. She says, I want to be holy. I want to be more like Christ. She said, I, I, I said, God, turn the heat up. And she says, I've had the worst week in my entire life. She says, I lost my job. My car broke down. and This thing happened, that thing happened. She just went through a litany of things that happened to her life. I can't remember them all. But I, I stood there dumbfounded. I said, wow, he heard your prayer, didn't he? And she says, but I have one question. I said, what's that? She says, is it okay to ask him to turn the heat down a little bit? Oh, we want to know Him. and We want to know His power. But to share in the fellowship of His sufferings, that's when you really want to know Him. That's when Christ and knowing Christ, nothing else compares. I would submit to you that there are not many Christians who would warmly and aggressively embrace that. That's the reality of things, folks. That's why the church is in such a state. A lot of talk going on, but not much substance in people's lives, sadly. So that's point one. I want to show you point two. He says, not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. He says, I don't have it all together. I'm not really fully 100% there and sharing in the fellowship of saints. I don't really know His power. I don't know Him like I want to know Him. I haven't got it all yet. He says, I've not been made perfect, but I, what, press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He says, I've taken hold of you that you might know me. You didn't choose me, I chose you, he said. I've taken hold of you that you might know me and know, might know my love, might know my grace, might know my glory. Isn't that glorious? I've taken hold of you. So Paul says, I press on. Brothers, he says, verse 13, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. None of us have. Yet. He says, but one thing I do. One thing I do. This guy is single-minded. Single purpose. Forgetting what is behind. Forgetting what is behind. I what? What does he say? I strain towards what is ahead. I strain towards what is ahead. What is he talking about? He's put all of his energy, everything he's got. He's straining to the limits of his ability. Does it sound like guys running a race, a race of his life? (laughs) I love athletics and athletic competition. I just, I just love it, and I participate still at this late stage of my life although I'm considerably slower than I used to be. It's amazing. But last Sunday afternoon, I went home from church, and as I was watching, having my lunch, I, I watched the Ironman triathlon on television from uh, Kailua Kona in Hawaii. And I used to live in Kailua Kona, so it holds an extra fascination for me. But the fact of the, of the competition was, was almost too much for me to be able to actually absorb. It was just amazing. Think of it. Here are, are people who, who get in the ocean and they swim in the ocean for two point, what 2.4 miles, 2.6 miles, something like that. They swim for 2.4 miles through the ocean. Then they get right out of the ocean water and they jump on a bicycle. And then they bicycle for 112 miles, racing. And they come in after 112 miles in the heat of the midday now, they jump off the bicycle, non-stop, and they run a marathon 26 miles. The winner did it in a little over eight hours, straight, solid, persevering. They interviewed him after the, uh, they interviewed him afterwards, and, and he was, he's a five or six-time winner of this thing. And he's getting older. And so it began to tell on him physically, in spite of his incredible. Physical condition and and all that. He said this. I'll never forget this. He said, he said I had to face and deal things, deal with things in me that I did not know were there. I wanted to quit. Hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. This is a guy just running a race. But the race is a metaphor for the life that we live and the race that we're in. Every day. Every day. Now I was just say you're going to go to Kona, Hawaii and you're going to get into the triathlon. You're the Ironman. You want to be an Ironman person. You know what they race for? They race for a t-shirt. You can't get the t-shirt unless you cross the finish line you pay your entry fee, you get in the race, you go, you do not get the t-shirt unless you cross the finish line. Now some people cross the finish line 24 hours later. Hobbled, broken, but they cross, they get their t-shirt. They get the prize. (laughs) They persevered. The average time I guess is about 12 hours. The winner did it in eight. Interesting. But here you are, you're in Kona, you're gonna run the Ironman. You just get off the airplane. You got your bicycle, you got your gear, you got your luggage, you got all your training stuff, you got all your food, you got all your packages, you got all your herbs, you got all your vitamins and you got boxes with you, right? And you get right to the starting line with all your stuff, right? And you launch into the race and you carry it all with you, right? What do you do? Oh, you leave it in the hotel. You leave it all behind you. You leave it all behind you. What? So that you can press on toward the goal to win the prize. You don't want to be encumbered. You're in the race. Forgetting what is behind. Do you remember when um, Moses first encountered God in the book of Exodus chapter 3? When you know Moses is out there tending the flock, and he sees this bush that's on fire but it's not burning up—curious sight, wouldn't you think? He says, "I don't think I'll go over and check that out." He goes over, checks out the bush. It's burned, it's on fire, and all of a sudden, a voice speaks to him out of the bush. Oh, it's God. No long and short of it. The bottom line is, God says, "Moses, I want you to go down to Egypt. Tell Pharaoh, to let my people go." Moses is a little chicken. He's—I don't know. He said. Well, who should I say sent me? What did God answer? I am. Just tell him, I am sent you. I am sent you. He didn't say, tell him, I was sent you. Or I will be. I am sent you. Now, why do I say that? Because we've got far too many Christians living in their past. Far too many Christians wallowing in their past. And far too many Christians being taught to wallow in their past. And then on the other hand, we got lots of Christians who are living way out there in the future. Scared to death. Immobilized. When in fact God says, I am the great I am. I'm the God of the present. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough care of its own. Today is the day. You with me? So forget what's behind. Don't fret about tomorrow. Live your life today to the max in the grace and the power of God. Strain today to be a faithful man, a faithful woman with what God has entrusted to you today. Forgetting what's behind. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 12 real quick. Hebrews chapter 12. Now chapter 12 12 logically is preceded by chapter 11, right? Chapter 11 is the great hall of fame of what? Faith. All the great hall of fame, all the all-stars are in chapter 11. Many of them mentioned, lots of them not mentioned by name. Many of them who experienced wonderful blessing in their life far more who did not. But nonetheless, their faith was just as solid. And so in chapter 11, and and if you haven't done this, you ought to go home and read chapter 11 of Hebrews and meditate on it, think about it, read it over and over and over, and just go, wow! But then we move into chapter 12, and I want you to look at verse 1 of chapter 12. The writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... What cloud of witnesses are we surrounded by? Everybody from chapter 11. All the saints, all the faith, all the guys that have already finished the Iron Man, all the ones who have just crossed the finish line, all the ones who have gotten the t-shirt. They're all up in the stands now. They're going, come on, don't
1: quit. Persevere, keep running. <laughs> Stay in the race.
0: There's this great, great cloud of witnesses observing. We're still in the race. We're the last generation bringing it home. And they're cheering us on. They're cheering us on. They're saying, don't quit. Don't fail. Be strong. Stand firm in the Lord. So we're, crowded, we're surrounded by this great crowd of witnesses. Therefore, let us throw off everything that hinders us in the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us. Jesus said, He who perseveres to the end will be saved. That's the one that gets the t-shirt. Not the guy that starts the race and drops out. Not the guy that makes it through the first two legs and drops out. The guy that perseveres to the end gets the t-shirt, gets the prize. And each one of us has a race that's marked out for us. My race is different from your race. Your race is different from her race. But nonetheless, we all have a race. And all of our obstacles are similar, though not the same. And we all have to deal with those demons that come up, that say, quit, quit, give up. Fail. Oh, the pressure is going to kill you. It's too much. It's too much. It's too much. Oh, he says we have this great cloud of witnesses cheering us on. He says in verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on who? On Jesus. Do you remember Peter? I love Peter. Here's Peter. He's in the boat with the other disciples. They're on the Sea of Galilee. It's nighttime. Jesus is not with them. All of a sudden, Peter looks out. He says, who's that out there walking on the water? Unusual sight, right? So Peter launches out. Peter takes the lead, of course. He says, Lord, Lord, is that you? If that's really you, command me to come out on the water. Now, if you were in the boat, would you have said that? <laughs> or would you have said as anything as absurd as command me to come out on the water? I wouldn't. I've never thought to say that. Of course, I'm not Peter. And Peter is just kind of a visionary. You know, he's kind of an inspirational guy. He's always launching out there where no one else is going to go. He's always sticking his foot in his mouth, so to speak. So he just gets it out there. He says, if that's you, command me to walk on the water. Now, he knows that Jesus can do this. Otherwise, he wouldn't say it. How many of us would risk that? Oh, he might say it. He might say it. Oh, gosh, I better not say it. I just lay low and keep quiet. (laughs) I can see I've touched some people's funny bones. So Jesus says what? Come on. Did that happen? You really? Oh, come on. No, you don't really believe that. Oh come on! You got on the boat, walked on the water. Give me a break. Do you really believe that happened? Yeah, You're not too sure, are you? Yeah. See, our liberal theological friends would have us believe that didn't really happen. It's just a, it's just kind of a metaphor, you know. That you have to kind of strip away the outer layers, and the truth is down there someplace in the middle. You got to find it, dig it out somehow. I believe it happened. I believe Peter actually got out of that boat and walked on the water. And he's out there, he's walking toward Jesus. Everything is cool, and all of a sudden he goes, "Ah!" I mean, he is cooking, but all of a sudden he gets his gaze off of Jesus and his focus turns to what? His circumstances, the waves and the wind, and all of a sudden he goes, "Ah!" And he starts to what? Sink and he, re- he gets back up Jesus save me and Jesus reaches down Jesus doesn't say well sink you sucker <laughs> does he do that? no he reaches down and lifts him back up he lifts him right back up and they went back to the boat how do you think they got to the boat? did Jesus carry him or did they both walk? I believe they both walked how could you not walk after that? <laughs>
1: Oh, Jesus, carry me. I can't make it. (laughs)
0: Give me a break. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Oh, he's the author of my faith. He's the perfecter of my faith. He's relieved me of all of that responsibility. He's working in me. I just need to keep my eyes on Him. I just need to keep following Him, walking with Him, loving Him, longing for Him, knowing Him. Jesus. He's the author and the perfecter of my faith. This one who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. Can we endure the cross? Can we endure the things that afflict our life? Absolutely. Why? Because we have through vision, as Jesus did. There's a joy that's set before us that's beyond the suffering, beyond the cross, beyond the pressure. And that joy that allows us to endure the cross, is Christ also allows us to disregard the shame of the cross. Jesus could hang on that cross, naked, vulnerable nothing hidden everything for every eye to see people spitting on him jeering at him mocking him and he could disregard it why because he had a joy that was set before him he could see through his present circumstance He says, consider him who has endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He's our example. He's our model. He's the one that's working in us. We can have faith in him. We persevere in Christ so that we don't lose heart. We don't grow weary. So that we can be what stable. No circumstance can knock me off my balance, as long as I have Him to look to. Turn back to Philippians chapter four, Acts chapter three. So the first point was what? First point was consider all things lost compared to knowing Christ. Secondly, persevering, leaving all things behind. Forgetting all the past. I press on. Look at verse 15. This is interesting. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. If you are a mature Christian, this is going to be your view. This is how you live your life. Verse 17, join with others in following my example, he says, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern. The pattern we gave you. What pattern did he give? That's point three. And now we're going to expand on the pattern. What pattern did Paul give? As he went about preaching and teaching in all the churches, what pattern did he give them so that they could live a stable life. What were the essential ingredients to stability in life? What does it mean to really know Christ? What does it really mean to have confidence in Him? What does it really mean to persevere in the race? Here it comes. These are the essentials to the pattern of the Christian life. First, you see in verses 2 and 3, there is discord in the church. There's two women, Yodia and Syntyche, and they're in conflict. There's a problem, and so Paul writes to him. He says, "I plead with Yodia and Syntyche. I plead with them to agree in the Lord." And then he asks a man by the name of Sisychus, means loyal yoke fellow. If you look in your notes and your margin, he says, "Sisychus, you come and you help them get together. You be a peacemaker." So we have a principle in verses 2 and 3. And that principle is that we must cultivate peace in the fellowship of love. Isn't the church a fellowship of love? Should we not work at cultivating peace? So if you know of a family that's in trouble, what do you do? You go and you begin to minister in that family. If you know Christians who are at odds, what do you do? You don't just say, it's none of my business. They're your brothers. You go and you minister in their life. You say, come on, let's sit down. Let's work this out. You take responsibility. You don't just leave it to the pastor. You say, Pastor, so and so's having a problem. You better go talk to him. When you come to me, those of you who have done it, what do I do? I say, go, you go do it. God showed you first. You go do it. Maybe that's why no one ever comes to talk to me anymore. Peace, spiritual stability demands that we cultivate peace in the fellowship of love. That the church be a what? A stabilizing environment. If the church is not a stabilized environment, it can't be a stabilizing environment. And we can't be used of God to stabilize one another's lives. Now, does that mean that there's going to be no disagreements? No, there's always going to be disagreements. Why? Because you're dealing with imperfect people who have not yet attained to the t-shirt. There's always going to be disagreements, but the issue is, let's not be disagreeable. If we're going to disagree, if we must disagree, let's disagree agreeably. Let's not let our disagreements separate the bond of love. And certainly we must agree on the fundamentals of the faith. And there are always going to be peripheral issues, you know, that people are going to disagree on. But those aren't the core issues. You don't fight and die over that stuff. Where you're going to fight and die is over the core issues. Where you take your stand, where you pour your energy, are the most important things. And even then, you constantly work for reconciliation and peace, and unity. Critical. Second point. Verse 4. What does he say? What does he say? Rejoice. Now, who in the world would ever pick rejoicing as a mark of a spiritually stable life? Critical. It's absolutely critical. In fact, it is so critical that Paul repeats himself. He says, Rejoice in the Lord most of the time. What? Yes, as always. Rejoice in the Lord when it's easy. When it's convenient. Rejoice in the Lord when? Always, always, always. Beloved. Cultivating an attitude of joy is essential to spiritual stability. Cultivating. Understand what what I'm saying? Cultivating an attitude of joy is essential to spiritual stability. My joy is not dependent on my circumstances. I rejoice in spite of my circumstances. Because my joy is in who? The Lord. My joy is in the Lord. Let me read to you some verses, and, and you write these down, look them up later, meditate on them, because this is so important. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices, he says, in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. Isn't that beautiful? My soul, what? Rejoices. And my God. Does that describe our life? How about this one? Jeremiah chapter 15 verse 16. When your words came, I ate them. They were my joy and my heart's delight. For I bear your name, O Lord God Almighty. Oh, my. How about 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 8. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Listen to what Peter says. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Does that describe your life as a Christian? Are you filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy? Because even though you don't see Him, you love Him. And that is a source of constant joy to you. You wake up in the morning delirious with joy.
1: Oh, Lord, I love you. I can hardly wait to wake up this morning and tell you.
0: You go to bed at night delirious with joy after a fun-filled day suffering. Joy inexpressible and glorious. Do I rejoice? Or am I a victim of my circumstances? Or I rise above Him and rejoice in Him who is my Savior, who is my hope, who is my salvation, who is my righteousness, who is my glorious hope. Listen to Habakkuk. You ever read Habakkuk? Habakkuk is a marvelous book. Habakkuk was one of the minor prophets, never prophesied, but he prayed. Habakkuk prayed for revival. And God said, I'm not saying revival, I'm saying judgment. I'm bringing the Babylonians and they're going to wipe out Judah. And sure enough, that's what happened. But listen to Habakkuk. At the end of his little three chapters, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Listen to his sentiment. He says, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Does this sound like a pretty desperate time? Everything that should normally be there is not going to be there. It's all going to be wiped out. He says, "Though all of this is true," verse eighteen. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. See, he he realizes he doesn't need these circumstances. He rejoices in who? God. Rejoice in the Lord always. Listen to Peter again. First Peter chapter four, verses twelve and thirteen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But, he says, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Then you'll say, it was worth it! It was worth
1: it! It was worth it! You may be overjoyed.
0: when His glory is revealed, when He comes back. So we're going to be peacemakers, and we're going to be people who rejoice always, critical to a stable life. Third element. Verse 5. Look at this. Now this is going to have to stay with me on this one. Verse 5. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Greek word that's translated here, gentleness, the Greek word is epikies. It is a word in the Greek language that has a broad meaning. It is not well translated by one English word. In this case, in the NIV, by the word, what? Gentleness. Gentleness. I want to suggest to you, and if you do the study, as I have, and as you read through the various commentators and the various translations of the Bible, you'll see a broad variety of words and and phrases used to translate this one particular word, epikies. But let me share with you uh, some of these other ideas and these other thoughts. It has been suggested that this word uh, has the sense of sweet reasonableness. Doesn't that sound nice? Let your sweet reasonableness be evident to all. Um, it's the idea that you're responsive to an appeal. That there is a gentleness about you. That when someone asks you something, you're sweetly reasonable about it. Now my friends Dan and Rose Center, Rose brags on her husband Dan all the time. She says whenever she goes to him with a request, Dan is sweetly reasonable. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful thing, isn't it, Dan? This word also has the idea of big heartedness. <laughs> big heartedness that you are a big hearted, generous person. It could also be translated goodwill. Let your good will be evident to all. Don't we as Christians wish goodwill on everybody, even those who persecute us and hate us and despitefully use us? So the idea is that you would, you would bend over backwards, if you will, to ensure the fact that you, that you evidence goodwill even to those people. Some have chosen the word magnanimity. They've used the word magnanimity. That just means um, that you are overly gracious. You are over-gracious. Let your magnanimity be evident to all. Some have suggested it means charity toward the faults of others. Let your charity toward the faults of others be evident. And still yet, others have suggested and said that it means mercy towards the failures of others. Let your mercy toward the failures of others be evident. Some have, have translated with the word indulgence. The English word indulgence. That means you have the ability to indulge all the failures of others and not be personally offended or bitter, unkind or resentful. It's the kind of patience, if you will, which is able to submit to injustice, disgrace, mistreatment, without hatred, without malice, without retaliation, without bitterness, without having to get back. Let your, if you will, humble graciousness, because aren't we talking, if we sum it all up, aren't we talking about a very gracious person? I mean, an extremely gracious. Nothing perturbs this person. They are so gracious. But they are humbly gracious. And that basically tells us and says to us that we can respond this way. We can say, in effect, you you may have offended me. You may have mistreated me. You may have misjudged me. You may have misrepresented me. You may have not given me what I deserve. In fact, you may have given me what I do not deserve. You may have ruined my reputation with some. You may have acted in hostility against me unjustly. I may be the recipient of your inequality, your injustice, your mistreatment, but I humbly and graciously accept it. I humbly and graciously accept it. What are we saying? We're saying that a stable person, if you will, a stable person is going to be one who learns to accept less than he or she thinks deserves. That's what a stable person is. That's a humbly, gracious person. You can say or do what you want. You know what? I accept it. I accept it. That's what it means. And again, isn't that exactly what the grace of God is like? If you think about it. You may have hated me. You may have been my enemy, as God could say to us. You may have shaken your fist in my face. You may have blasphemed me. You may have mistreated me. Misjudged me. You may have done all of that. And yet still, he says, I reach out to you in love. I reach out to you in love. When you have that kind of an attitude, you are a stable person. You are a stable person. Spiritual stability belongs to the humbly gracious. You don't demand your rights. You don't need to. You don't need to. All you need is Christ. To know him. To know the power of his resurrection. And a willingness to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. We live in a day and an age when the philosophical mindset is quite simply everybody has a right to do whatever pleases them. I want my way, when I want it, how I want it, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. (laughs) What an illusion. That's the philosophy of existentialism. That's the 25 cent word, by the way. And it is most clearly illustrated to us by none other than Burger King. Burger King has been very perceptive and they picked up on the theme of our age. And what is that? Have it your way. You know what? I've been to Burger King a number of times. I have yet to have it my way. They say, have it your way. I don't get it my way. My way is that I get the burger and I don't pay. That's my way. But every time I go, I have to pay. That's their way. So you see, bottom line, really, the existential philosophy of having it your way doesn't work. And our whole society is mired down in it, and even the church has been affected by it. But nonetheless, that is the mindset of our day. You've got to feel good about yourself. You've just got to. That is absolutely paramount. You've got to feel good about yourself. You say, well, are you against feeling good about yourself? No. But I am against it being the central theme and goal of my life. Feeling good will come as a byproduct of what? Having Christ as the centerpiece of my life. We're talking about the process of sanctification by the Spirit of the living God working in me, transforming me so that I become the image of Christ. Then I have something to feel good about. (laughs) But if I make it my goal to feel good about myself, I set myself up for a huge failure. You've got to feel good about yourself. You've got to evaluate yourself. You've got to elevate yourself. You've got to love yourself. You've got to develop yourself. And that kind of thinking has permeated the church. We have... Bought a bill of goods. Tragically. We're teaching our kids. We're saying, we're, we're being told, you gotta, you got to build up these kids' self-esteem. No, you don't build up their self-esteem. You build them up in the Spirit. You, you disciple them in Christ. You teach them how to walk after Jesus. You discipline them. You train them. A byproduct is that they grow into healthy, mature Christians. Lights. But if you're just rubbing their tummies, saying, it's okay, it's okay, you're okay, you're okay, everything's all right. Oh, don't feel bad. You set them up for a huge failure in life. An ongoing instability for the rest of their life. We have Christians telling us that we should do this very thing. I categorically disagree. Because it doesn't... It doesn't agree with the Scriptures. And so we've got people say, whatever feels good to me, whatever satisfies me, whatever builds me up, whatever gets me over my inferiority complex, whatever gives me a better self-image, whatever gives me better self-esteem, that's what I do. Self-focus. But on the other hand, what does Paul say? Paul says, be humble. Be gracious. Don't demand anything. Love those who persecute or mistreat you. Be merciful in the face of the failures of others. That's what Paul says. And you'll be a stable person. You'll be a stable person. Spiritual stability comes when I have no demands for myself. Say that with me. Spiritual stability comes when I have no demands for myself. Woo, man. You see, then, when I have no demands for myself, then if I get something, fine. If I don't get something, that's fine too. You see? I'm making no demands for myself. I'm not the center of my universe anymore. If I'm treated a certain way, fine. If I'm not treated a certain way, that's fine too. Doesn't really matter. Why? Because I'm not concerned about me. I'm not the issue anymore. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to die to yourself. That's what it means to pick up your cross, deny yourself. I'm not the issue anymore. Before Christ, all I was was the issue. I'm not concerned about me. That's what Paul says. That's what allows Paul to say, I'm content in whatever circumstance I find myself. He says, because I'm not the issue anymore. Are you the issue? Because if you are, you'll never have this kind of Gracious, humbly gracious spirit. You'll never be a person who rejoices. You'll be so focused on yourself, your circumstances, your instability, which perpetuates more instability. And you'll be absolutely worthless to the church, to yourself, to your family. And no one could depend on you because you are constantly unstable. You're double-minded like the man in James 1, Ephesians 4.14, tossed about on every wind of doctrine, unstable. But see, stability, stability is a whole different thing, isn't it? Stability means you can't get knocked off balance. Some people just seem to live and die in that revolving door of listening to what everybody says about them. What everybody says bad about them, what everybody says good about them, they take that stuff personally. Every single thing that happens in their life, they filter it through their little ego process. And if it's wounded them in any way, then they're in immediate instability. Immediately. And anxiety takes over their life. Beloved, you cannot be knocked off balance by inequity, by injustice, by unfair treatment, by lies, by humiliation, if you're not the issue. We must cultivate, we must learn how to not demand anything for ourselves. It's real simple, not easy. That's why you've got to pick up your cross. Die daily. And now look at verses verse 6. Actually, the last part of verse 5. Here's the heart of it all. Here's the heart of it all. This is point number four. What are the last four words of verse 5? What the, what's the one phrase that's sandwiched between verse 5 and verse 6? Here comes the heart of it all. What allows me? What is the very thing that allows me to be humbly gracious? The Lord is near. Take those four words and box them in in your your Bible. Just box them in. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. Say that. The Lord is near. That's the heart of everything. Beloved, spiritual stability requires resting on a confident faith in the Lord. Your view of God is what stabilizes you. And when you delight in His Word, you do delight in His instruction, you meditate there in day and night, it transforms your view. And you begin to see just exactly who He is and how He acts. And now your view of God brings stability to your life. Remember the book of Job? First couple of chapters? God pulls the curtain back on eternity gives us a little peek into what goes on behind the scene. We see what happened to Job's life on the external. He got wiped out. He didn't have a clue what's going on, but God gives us a little clue. Was God there the whole time? Absolutely. Did he know exactly what was going on? Nothing happened to Job's life that God didn't first give permission and allow to happen. The Lord is near. Job said, Though you slay me, still I will trust you. He still didn't have all the facts. Later on, he says, I know my, my Savior lives. What? His view of God. He was confident in his God. And you see the Lord bless him at the end of the book. Do we live our life on that reality that the Lord is near? He says, the Lord is near. So look at verse 6, what? Don't be what? Anxious. Anxious. On the one hand, I can live my life in such a way as to be humbly gracious. On the other hand, I can live my life in such a way as to not be anxious about what? Anything, because why? The Lord is near. He's my rock. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows His plan for my life. I can trust Him, because I know Him. Because I've read His book Understand that the Lord is near. And who this Lord is that is near. That's the heart of a stable life. That brings stability to our life. When we lose control, when we flip out, it's because we have a lack of confidence in God. If I have the true confident trust in Him, that He is near, what? Would I ever worry about? What would I ever worry about, really? It doesn't matter what men say against me. It doesn't matter how they treat me. The Lord is near and knows the truth about everything. And if I know who my God is and that He is near, that is all that I need to know. That's all that I need to know. You're near! I know I'm not going down. You'll sustain me. You'll sustain me. The Lord is near. That will be the source of our confidence. That will be the source of our confidence. What am I going to be worried about? Something that God can't handle? That's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. If we fret, if we worry as Christians if we find ourselves unstable in all manner of ways, from anorexia to schizophrenia, as we have been labeled, we're really saying, hear me, we're really saying, I cannot cope with life. I cannot deal with life. But the real underlying demonstration is that you really don't trust God. That's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. All the various instabilities of life demonstrate in our lives because bottom line, we do not trust Him. We are unstable in all ways. Fearful, anxious, unforgiving, bitter, vengeful, and on and on and on it goes. And we're running here and there and here and there to get counsel, to get advice, to deal with these problems when it's all right here. Because He is near, I can pray. I can talk to him. I can bring all my requests, all my petitions to him. And I bring them not in an, in an attitude of anxiety, but rather with an attitude of thanksgiving.
1: And he's.